you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, we're going to camp out in the first 10 verses of that chapter. And what we're doing today, we're continuing our series going through our core values as a church. We spent four weeks talking about uh, the mission statement that God led us pastors to, which is uh, we believe that the hallmark of our mission as a church is to experience God's love and extend God's love. And that statement is purposefully broad. Uh, It's supposed to be a North Star that we're shooting for, which guides our ministries as a church. But since that can be too broad, we're also putting before you these core values, which act as guide rails that give further definitions and directions to our ministry as a church. So last week, Pastor Chuck taught us about God's glory, how our goal is to bring God glory and emphasize his glory in all that we do. And this week, we're talking about God's grace. We decided to do something a little bit differently today, and we're splitting the sermon in two. Uh, I'm going to guide us in scripture to an understanding of our salvation by grace, and then later, Pastor Chuck will come, and he's going to teach us how God's grace continues to transform us as we grow in our faith. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, we love your word. We're so thankful for the truths that you bring us to, understanding ourselves, understanding who you are, and understanding the great work that you've done through Christ on our behalf. Would you take us deeper this morning? Would you give us deeper understanding that we may praise you in a deeper way? And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about grace this morning. And I think a good working definition of grace that'll be helpful for our understanding is that grace is unmerited favor. Another way to say that is grace is a gift that you do not deserve. The entire concept of grace is built upon the unworthiness of the recipient. And as you may have noticed in this passage, we don't get to talking about grace until the second half of the passage. The first half is full of a lot of ugly, bad, condemning kind of stuff. However, our understanding of the richness of God's grace 
is directly tied to our understanding of our unworthiness. I want to read again these first three verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. <clears throat> These verses are critical to our understanding of who we are apart from Christ. The first thing we see is that apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. This is not a physical death. This is a spiritual death. And when we see the surrounding verses, we see that the status of our spiritual life has to do with what we give our devotion to, has to do with our desires, it has to do with our moral deeds. And a spiritually dead person is following the course of this world. They're subject to the shifting ideas and philosophies as the world sees fit. They are following the prince of the power of the air, meaning they follow after Satan in rebellion against God. The spiritually dead person is carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and was by nature a child of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. A spiritually dead person is focused on pleasing self, looking out for their own interests and pleasure. They do not seek after God, nor can they please God. Now, throughout church history, and, and maybe in the minds of some of you today, there's been a lot of mental gymnastics done concerning this word dead. There's controversy surrounding this word because it would make us feel better if the definition were a little bit more like a conversation in The Princess Bride. Your friend here is only mostly dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. And sometimes when we look back on our state before meeting Christ, we're tempted to think that we were only mostly dead. I still did some good things, right? I mean, it says followed after Satan, but I never did any seances or Ouija boards. I even grew up in a Christian home. That's got to count for something, right? And I'll spare you the study of the original Greek to let you know that the word dead really means dead. There's a reason that Paul chose the word dead to describe us rather than sick. Sick doesn't accurately describe it because with sick, there's a chance we could get better. Maybe we could heal. Maybe we could rehabilitate. But dead is dead. To borrow the words from Monty Python, he's not pining. He's passed on. He's no more. He's ceased to be. He's off the twig, kicked the bucket, shuffled off his mortal coil, run down the curtain, and joined the choir invisible. <laughs> To use another analogy, we were not people drowning in a pool, waving our hand at the lifeguard to save us. Apart from Christ, we are dead at the bottom of that pool. And I want to go into this at length because many of us were raised with this idea that God gave us the kind of free will that we had equal choices in choosing good things or bad things. And that someone just came along one day and appealed to that goodness that's inside of us and said, keep doing good things, keep making good decisions to please God. And that day you became a Christian. You cleaned yourself up, you started wearing the right clothes, you switched your political party, and you reprogrammed your car radio stations. 
And my fear is that many of us were taught this kind of free will where God didn't have to work as hard with us. Or God didn't have to forgive as many sins for me as he did for others. Apart from Christ, our will is not free. In fact, being dead means that our will is in bondage. We had no choice but to follow after the world. We were slaves to sin and Satan. We had no choice but to carry out the desires of our own bodies. And I am afraid that some of you here have traded the bondage of our will, not for true freedom in Christ, but instead for harsh religion that says, work harder, do better, cover up your sins, and then maybe you would be good enough to please God. Without understanding the inability of our spiritually dead state, we will submit to law rather than grace, all in the name of free will. When Paul is analyzing our state apart from Christ, he is describing us at the lowest, rock-bottom, feral kinds of creatures that we are, without hope, without desire to seek God. And when we strip it down to that point, we cannot appeal to any kind of goodness that's found within us. And that is what makes it all the more amazing when we appeal only to God's goodness. This is grace. Verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." Do you see the stark contrast that Paul makes here? The lowly, detestable place that we are in by nature and by choice. God looks upon us in that lowest state in the full spiritual death, in the lack of desire and lack of ability to seek him and please him. And he does not look upon us with disgust, but instead at the sight of us, he is moved to all manner of mercy and love. And then he doesn't just pick us up and shine our shoes and just make us a little bit better. Right there at the lowest point, he takes our dead soul and raises it to newness of life. Each and every person in here, if your trust is in Christ, you didn't just one day decide to start doing better. God has taken you from death to life, all out of the fullness of love and goodness found in him and not in us. It is unmerited, it is undeserved, and it's completely free. And the more you explore the chasm between your sin and death and the grace that God gives, the more unbelievable, humbling, and amazing that grace becomes. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now we have the temptation on one side to say, maybe there was just enough goodness in me to merit salvation. But then on the other side, we have this equal opposite temptation, which says, well, God could see what I would become one day and therefore decided to save me. Like 
Wow, he had such a testimony to share, and it's going to impact so many people. Of course God would save him. Or he saw I would become a pastor, or he saw these people are going to be sent off to do missions, so of course God would save them. But if we have any ounce of meriting this salvation, either by past works or future works, not only does it diminish God's grace, it ceases to be grace. And Paul highlights that it's, it is not a result of works so that no one has a reason to boast. Not a single person in this room is ever going to measure up to the kind of works that God did through Paul. He planted churches all over the known world. He wrote most of the New Testament, and he was martyred for his faith. And yet he writes to the church that it wasn't out of something found within him, and it wasn't because he would finally measure up to something one day. He was dead. God made him alive. His salvation is a miracle. Your salvation is a miracle. There is no room for boasting, only praise and honor and glory to God because he is good, not me. This is grace. That all we bring to the table is sin, rebellion, and spiritual death. And by trusting in faith that he can give life where there is none, that he would take his enemies and make them his friends, that he would adopt children of wrath into his own family. He does this not to show grace one time, but for ages to come, that there would be immeasurable riches of his grace poured out on us. We will never outgrow the need for this grace. We will never stop praising him for the richness, the kindness, and the wonder of this grace. No work can get us to this place, but this grace compels us forward in good works. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we saw previously, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we had no will to please God, but only to please ourselves. Our will was in bondage to the flesh. And now, with the new life given in Christ, our will is liberated. In Christ, our will is free. It is free not simply to do as we please, but because of the new life in Christ, we are free to love God. We're free to serve God. We are free to do the works that he has laid before us. We can choose not to satisfy our selfish desires, and we are free to choose the things of God. And we do this not out of obligation, but because love pulls us to do good works. And once again, these works in no way merit our salvation, but they flow out of our salvation. And we cannot boast in these works because God prepared them, not me. We are not generating goodness from within to choose to do good rather than bad. But because of the grace shown to us by God, we have overwhelming desire to please him in response to his love. Now, as you can probably tell, I would love to preach this sermon forever and keep going here. And there's so much more to talk about. And in this lifetime, we are only going to scratch the surface of God's bottomless well of grace. So since I must end here for time, I want to leave you with a couple of things. 
First of all, rest in God's grace. Let yourself be floored, jaw wide open in awe of His grace. And in the humility that this necessarily produces, give Him the praise and honor that is due His name. And secondly, stop trying to earn His love. Stop trying to add to your salvation. Stop submitting yourself to law when you have been set free. He has done all the heavy lifting. He has left no part of your salvation undone. Your salvation is not on probation. It is paid in full. Rest in His grace and in thankfulness let His grace flow through you to the world around you. If you have questions about grace, or especially if this understanding of free will is new to you, I would love to talk to you more after the service. Uh, But for now, let's all stand together and let's sing in response to his grace.
that leads the sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this grace 
that is so much bigger than we often give it credit for. Just as you are so much bigger than we often give you credit for. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would open our eyes and ears and minds and hearts just a little bit more this morning and give us the ability to perceive just a little bit more as we already have to the scope of your grace and how much you do for us. And may you build in us through it a, a greater trust of you and a greater gratitude for what you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm, I'm sorry to any of you who feel duped as though you've gotten a two-for-one sermon that you didn't want. Uh, there's nothing you can do about it. I'm just sorry. Um, you know, the Christian life, Austin said it, uh, and, and Pastor Austin, thank you so much for how you served us already from the Word and the music, but Austin, Austin said this earlier, and I just want to draw a little more attention to it. The, the Christian life is a miracle. It's just an absolute miracle. And by that, here's what I mean. There is no humanly possible, feasible way for you to become a Christian on your own. It is completely outside of your ability on your own, without outside intervention, for you to walk with God in unity. And you've heard all the bad things Austin said about you earlier. <laughs> and the, the worst part is that they're all true. And so here we are as, as walking miracles. And, and, and this miracle of being a Christian is really twofold. It's a miracle that you even became a Christian. And then it's a miracle that you walk as a Christian. Because, i got to be careful here. It, I, I believe fully in the perseverance of the saints, that, that, that we are always saved. But this daily walk with Christ is a miracle in and of itself. In that, we can't do it apart from Him. You can't walk with Jesus apart from Jesus. You can't get there on your own and maintain that walk. You both are miracles of God's grace. That walking in faith and obedience, if we, were to try and, if we were trying to walk in obedience without the grace of God, if we were to try to suffer with joy without the grace of God, or to humble ourselves without the grace of God, or to trust God and walk through what the world would tell us are closed doors without His grace, it would just completely decimate us. And so Austin began the service, began this, this two-part sermon with the ever-important reminder that we are saved by God's grace. And, and one of the reasons we split this up is um, to add emphasis to both parts. That we are saved by God's grace and God's grace does a whole heck of a lot more than save us. The abundant grace of God saves us from sin and judgment. That's what Austin talked about. The abundant grace of God saves us from sin and judgment and equips us for Christ-like living and service. And here's the great news of that. Once we're saved, we are not done with God's grace. 
And God's grace is not done with us. Isn't that good news? And so I, I need for me to understand this, and I desire for you to understand this, that God's grace does a whole lot more than save you. And that once saved, we have a chronic need for God's grace. Once you're saved, you have a chronic need for God's grace. And the first, first place I want to point us to that need this morning, and this is very much Austin and I giving you a tip of the iceberg on God's grace today, is that it strengthened, we need God's grace to strengthen and sustain. Again, I want, to, I want to point us to the human improbability of walking with Christ. That when we are left to our own devices, we turn the, this beautiful thing called Christianity into a joyless, legalistic, lonely existence. That's what we do on our own. That's where we arrive when we take grace out of walking with God. As Christians, God does this interesting thing. He could, He could, the moment we come to faith in Christ, just yank us out of here and take us home. He could do that. He could be out using His angels using the Holy Spirit apart from us to evangelize the world, it'd probably be way more effective, certainly more effective than what I do. And then once we get saved, be like, all right, they're saved, and just yank us up to heaven, and, and we could do that. But instead, he leaves us here to continue to learn to walk with him, to continue to trust him, to worship him in all of that process. And here we are, living in a broken world. And while we are living in the same broken world as everybody else, we are hearing from the world how effective the vices of the world are at treating symptoms of brokenness. And so we are hearing... We are experiencing brokenness, conflict in our families, dissatisfaction with our jobs, financial strain, illness, death, suffering from broken relationships, people mistreating us on account of Christ. And all the while we hear the world saying, if you drink enough of this, your problems go away for a while. If you give yourself to this physical pleasure, you'll be better off. And there's this temptation to alleviate our suffering with the vices of the world because the world is declaring out how, how well they work. But as a Christian, we can't do that because we know that those vices of the world will only lead to more brokenness and more pain. And God gives us a whole lot of promises. And we're, I'm going to examine in the strength and sustain one of those promises that he gives us is that we will face trials. We will face persecutions of many kinds. Another way of putting this promise is, children, you will need me. And so we, we struggle with this, and we, our need for God's grace goes into how we live in this broken world and how we face suffering. And there's so many times where when suffering comes in its various forms, and it comes in a lot, we, we 
question, why is this happening? Why is God doing this? And we, we take on kind of the voice of Job's friends a little bit. Uh, what problem is there in me that, that is resulting in this kind of pain and trial? But today I want us to focus on what God does for us in the midst of those trials. Because we'll, we'll never understand this side of heaven, all that goes into why we go through what we go through. But what does he do in the midst of those? And, and for that, I want to point us to 2 Corinthians 12. Paul is going through a really unique trial, one that, that to the best of my knowledge, none of us have gone through. Uh, and it's, it's probably more extreme than what we've gone through. Paul talks about how he goes, hey, I know this guy. And while he's saying this, he's kind of pointing at himself, who was taken up into heaven, seen all of it, but uh, forbidden to talk about it, so he won't grow conceited. And then he says uh, in verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. So Paul was given by God's providence and sovereignty a demon to harass him. To keep him from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. There's so many in our culture who are trying to alleviate, just get rid of the pain in their lives. They're trying to pursue this gospel of wellness that if I just take good enough care of myself, all this will go away. I'm going to make myself emotionally, mentally well, physically well. And there's a benefit to that to a point. But here, in this suffering, in your suffering, the grace of God is sufficient for you in this moment. God's provision for your every need when you need it. He, Wearsby says, he gives us his grace so that the affliction works for us and not against us. Isn't that something? That there's, there's, we just feel this pressure kind of beating down on us, and God gives us his grace so that that affliction would actually work for our benefit. Like James and Peter say, that, that through these trials we develop perseverance, our faith deepens, we grow in wisdom, so that we will not lack anything. That by God's grace... Your loss, your suffering, your strife, your illness could actually be for your benefit. That's more powerful than just an outright removal of it. Certainly, if God just healed you or resolved your conflict, that would be a powerful healing and miracle and we would praise God. But what a greater miracle it is when God takes that thing that feels like it's going to destroy us and actually uses it, to, uses it to benefit us. Warren Wearsby, I have a quote. I'm going to pull up of Warren Wearsby here. I'm going to start a little bit before where that does. We do not live on explanation. We live on promises, he says. But God does not 
give us, um, God does not give us his grace simply that we might endure our sufferings. Even unconverted people can manifest great endurance. God's grace should enable us to rise above our circumstances and feelings and cause our afflictions to work for us in accomplishing positive good. God wants to build our character so that we are more like our Savior. God's grace enabled Paul not only to accept his afflictions, but to glory in them. His suffering was not a tyrant that controlled him, but a servant that worked for him. And that is what God's grace accomplishes. This is, this is God's grace leading us home, preparing us to enter glory that Christ would be seen as strong. In 2 Timothy 2.1, Paul tells Timothy, strengthen yourself in the grace of God. Strengthen yourself in this grace that as you're facing the trials of ministry, as you're facing the trials of life, as you're trying to get a whole group of people who still sin all the time to get along for the gospel, strengthen yourself in the grace of God. And so what would it look like for us to strengthen ourselves in the grace of God? Well, we would allow the grace of God to decentralize ourselves. That we would remove ourselves from the middle of the, of the, of the issue and rely instead on God's richness. That God would give his richness to us. That we would make our walk with God about what he can do and not how we can grit and bear it. And not how we have the answer, but what God has accomplished. We'll get more into decentralizing ourselves in a little bit. But that when we live in the strength of God, our circumstances do not become a, triumph, a tyrant that controls us, but a servant that works for our good. That as Paul rejoiced in right after Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, that we would say that I'll boast in my weakness because the power of Christ will rest upon me. I want to give us a case study from the Old Testament, a very popular verse that we, we love to quote, uh, Isaiah 40, 31, right? The people have just heard from Isaiah, you're going into captivity. You're going into captivity. And then right after they hear that you're going into captivity, you're going to be carted off to this land Shortly after that, he gives power to the faint. I'm going to start in verse 29 of Isaiah 40. And to him who has no might, he increases his strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. That's every youth pastor's life verse. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And so many times we misapply this verse. And here's what we do with this verse. We say, you know what, even youths grow tired and weary, but with God's power, I'm just going to fly over this. But we miss what Isaiah's doing. Isaiah's using a, a, a method of, of teaching here where it's kind of like a descending emphasis. Because if this was the opposite, you could walk and not faint, you could run and not grow weary, you could fly over it. That's the message we want. But here's what Isaiah is saying. And, he, and he's teaching us about relying on the grace of God and how the grace of God sustains us and how it's more powerful. 
You who wait on the Lord, you who are resting and strengthening yourself in the grace of God, you could have, God could give you the power to fly right over these 70 years of captivity. He is so powerful, he could cause you to fly right over it like an eagle flies over a mountain. God is so powerful, he could cause you to run through it and you wouldn't even get tired. But God is also so powerful that you can walk through every slow and grueling step of this next season of captivity. And his grace will be with you in every single step of it. And so often, we want to run right past our trials. And God's grace strengthens and sustains us to walk through the slow, grueling season of suffering that's ahead of us. That's how powerful his grace is. So once saved, we have a chronic need for God's grace to strengthen and sustain us and to liven our community and service. Our community, as a body of believers, we as Westchester, we are livened by God's grace. And when we use God's grace as a pair of glasses to correct our vision, it helps us to only grow in that. Too many times we view each other in the flesh. We don't view each other in the spirit. And what God's grace does is we put that on like a pair of glasses and then those fuzzy things become clear. And when we, when we put on God's grace like this pair of glasses, it continues this work of decentralizing ourselves so that we can value each other, that we can look around at the brothers and sisters in Christ around us and say, this person is a recipient of God's unmerited favor. They if we apply what Austin said out of Ephesians 2 to, to the people around us, they've been seated with Christ in heaven. And we also, in valuing people according to God's grace, we say they have received God's unmerited favor, so why should they need to earn mine? See how that changes our dynamics? Well, if that person doesn't agree with me on bullet points X, Y, and Z, then I have no time for them. If that person can't get their life together the way I think they should get their life together, then I have no time for them. But that's not viewing people according to the grace that God has given you, is it? That God would look at you, a child of wrath, a son of disobedience, following Satan, and say, you know what, I want them home with me. I'm going to adopt that person. And so we need to value people with that same grace. It livens our relationships so that we can handle conflict in a way that is informed by God's grace, that our knowledge and experience of God's grace in our lives, that, that forgiveness would come so much easier. If God is able to forgive their sin against him, and it has been fully dealt with on the cross, nailed to the cross for the open shame of Satan and their justification before God, then how could I withhold forgiveness? When we view people with God's grace, we drop our favoritism in a way that actually frees us up to just extend God's love to each other all the more. And then the one another's that, that shape 
the Christian community move from being a lecture to a joyful response to what God has done for us. That bearing with one another in love, outdoing one another in zeal and good works becomes a joy. And then God's grace is how we are able to minister. Go to, go to Romans 12 if you want to follow along with me. If you want to take my word for it, then you know, you're on your own. Starting in verse 6, Paul's talking about, listen to how he talks about spiritual gifts. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion with our faith, if service serving one another, him who teaches in his teaching, uh, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads in zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then if you want to just, for the fun of it, flip over to Peter. So we have two different guys saying this. Two different guys who have pretty good biblical resumes, who have pretty good track record of being reliable and writing Scripture. 4.10 of 1 Peter. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whatever your gifting is in ministry, whatever your gifting is in contributing to the body of Christ, that is God's varied grace in your life. And I'm just going to tell you this as, as your pastor, but more as your brother in Christ, we need you to use it. I need you to exercise the grace God has given you. That God has given you motives and skill in ministry for His body and to glorify His name. And there's, there's two parts to this that we should see. One is an accountability piece. If God's given me a gift in ministry and I just sit back, who am I to withhold the grace God has given me from you, my brothers and sisters in Christ? Who am I to say, yeah, God's given me this grace, but I'm just not going to do anything with it? God has given you grace. So there's this accountability piece, but then more than that, and this is what I want us to focus on, is the goodness of serving. That you have the opportunity to take God's grace and give it to God's people. And the Christian community is at its best when we use these gifts of grace. Today's the Super Bowl, I don't know if you heard. And there's some of you who are, who are maybe going to someone's house because they have a bigger TV than you. I want you to imagine someone who, let's say two weeks before the Super Bowl, they walk into whatever your favorite electronic store is and they shop for a TV and surround system. And they end up they're like, boy, I didn't know that that many inches could be on a TV screen, but I'm going to get it. So they get some, like, ridiculous 85-inch TV. They're like, I don't need to look at anything else on that wall of my house. I just, this is better than wallpaper. They put up the TV. They wire in the surround sound system. And then we get to February 13th, 2022. And they get their TV and their surround sound. 
it's like 85K TV, you know, more definition than you could ever want. You actually like feel the sweat of the players coming on you. <laughs> and what they do with that TV and that surround sound system on February 13th, 2022, at 5.30 in the evening, is they kick on the symphony. They listen to Bach. Most of you right-minded people in this room would say you are not using that, those devices for their proper and fullest benefit. <laughs> and you'd be right in that rebuke. How many of us are not using God's grace to that fullest level how much are we just depriving ourselves of what God has for us? We are saved by grace. And His grace is so much more abundant than our salvation. May we live in that abundance. I'm going to pray as the praise team comes forward. Father God, You are so good. You are so rich. I think, Lord, of what Paul says in Ephesians, that you have lavished upon us grace and mercy. And so, Lord, in the, the abundance of the richness of your grace, I pray that we would not live on a nickel, but that we would live on the billions and billions and billions of your grace and mercy, and that you would have your way in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.